0: Welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah. And this is a podcast where we talk about strange stuff, crazy cases, and things that are very, very fascinating. In other words, if it's weird, wild, bizarre, and provocative we're going to talk about it on this podcast. We have some interesting stuff for you all this week. There were so many crazy articles in the news this week that we're going to cover off on some of those before we get into our main case for the day. This one I found very, very interesting. It originally came out on the AP. The author was Don Babwin. And this article was, was killer in 1976, slaying of a suburban teen, a serial killer. And I personally had never heard of this person. But This happened in Chicago, a man who police suspected strangled a 16-year-old suburban Chicago girl in 1976, may have killed as many as a dozen young women, and plotted to kill others before he died. But the way he died is the part of this case that I find most interesting. This man died during a fatal knife attack on a teenage boy, a detective investigating the case reported. They started digging to see common threads in a bunch of missing persons cases in the Chicago area, and there were nine that they were aware of, and that number could actually go up to as high as 12, the police department says. They are now investigating this man whose name is Bruce Lindahl. He has been linked by DNA evidence to a 1976 slaying of a woman by the name of Pamela Marer. The total number of people that this man potentially killed raises a very chilling prospect. And that is that from the 70s until his death in 1981, police are now beginning to suspect that Lindahl may have been abducting, raping, and killing women and girls without raising suspicions in various suburban police departments. Now, granted, back then, at the time that all of this happened, many police departments were not connected and did not have communication between them, particularly when violent crimes happened. That allowed a lot of cases to slip through the cracks, particularly if the people they were looking into blended into the rest of society well. Just as unnerving, though, to many that are looking in on this case is the evidence that women who fled his grasp by pure luck or their own actions may have narrowly escaped death. Police say that at the time all this was happening, they pulled Lindahl over in a car and found there was an unconscious woman bleeding from a deep gash in her head, in his car. The police, when they pulled him over, asked him what he was doing. And he said he was taking her to the hospital. The police then said that they told him he was going in the wrong direction. But rather than let him drive off, they had an ambulance take the woman to the hospital where examinations revealed she had been sexually assaulted. Now, crazy as it is, the woman did not remember anything about what happened after Lindahl gave her a sip of something at a party. So no charges were ever filed in this case, but this woman clearly escaped by the skin of her teeth. Detectives also say they're very confident that Lindahl was driving to a remote location to kill this woman and dump her body. She definitely escaped with her life in a very, very horrifying situation, Lindall though was 29 when he died during a fatal knife attack on 18-year-old Charles Huber. This part is the craziest. I've never heard anything like this. But this man inadvertently severed a major artery in his own leg and bled to death while he was attacking Charles Huber at the scene. The two bodies and the way they were found suggested Lindell may have planned to also kill Huber's girlfriend, who was sleeping a few feet away in the other room. The cops back then thought that it made sense that he was going to kill Huber and then the girlfriend and blame the deaths on each other. So a murder-suicide type of a thing. But the case of Deborah Colliander suggests another close call for yet another woman, Colliander, who reported that Lindahl abducted her from a suburban shopping mall, took her back to his apartment and raped her before she escaped. But days before she was set to testify in his rape trial, she disappeared and her body was not found until after Lindahl's death. Now, when he died, eventually her body was found in a shallow grave and they knew that something was terribly wrong about this. But Police were trying to retrace Lindahl's steps in the Marrer investigation and found in a report that a woman had told police someone had tried to abduct her from the same mall on the same day. Now, back then, it appears that the police departments obviously were not working with each other, but now they're able to connect a lot of these cases and look back on the reports to really build a path of where they think Lindahl was going and what he had done to all these people way back then. But there were also stories from women who dated Lindahl, and some said he'd hand them a knife and tell them to pretend to attack him so that he could show them self-defense. Police say that these play fights were actually part of a ruse to kill the women and then make it look like he was simply defending himself. Evil, evil, evil. While the police are hopeful that DNA evidence will link Lindahl to other crimes, they acknowledge that it's only been used so far in the case of Marr. And there are plenty of coincidences. When Lindahl lived in the Lyle area, women there were disappearing as well. Now, about the time Lindahl moved to the Aurora area, women stopped disappearing from the Lyle area and started disappearing closer to his new home. The police say the body of a young woman was found about a block from the spot where Marr's body was found. And the day Lindahl is believed to have abducted this poor woman, he tried but failed to convince another girl to get into his car in a neighboring community. Now, invest Investigators are running down all these new tips that they've received since announcing this case last week. And they're also trying to identify women whose photographs, many of them were nude, were discovered in Lindahl's apartment after his death. So these trophies that he kept are now being used as police evidence for them to try to figure out what happened and how many girls Lindahl did indeed kill. One of these photos appears to show a woman by the name of Deborah McCall. Now, she was from Downers Grove High School, and she was a student who vanished in 1979, but her body was never found. In some of the photographs, the young women look absolutely terrified. Others look like these women were posing voluntarily without a hint of fear, But the story about Colleander is a reminder that those faces cannot be trusted. Colleander described to police how Lindell ordered her into a lewd pose while he took photographs. She said he was saying to her this whole time, why aren't you looking like you're having fun? So he was threatening her with bodily harm if she did not pretend like she was having an amazing time in this photograph. So I can completely believe that. And... As this case continues to unfold, we will keep everyone posted, but there is a backlog of DNA evidence that they are now continuing to review as they're looking at Lindahl and his potential involvement for a lot of other cases in the Chicago area. We'll keep you guys posted as this case unfolds. Now, another really crazy case that seems to have popped up in the news that I found very interesting was the case of the Michigan man who pled insanity in the gruesome case of murder and cannibalism. Now, this case is absolutely crazy. This was a dad of four who worked as a chemist who has now been accused of cannibalizing his grinder date. This happened in Bennington Township, Michigan. This man's name was Wilk Olakos Vilkas, which... Crazy foreign name. I, I apologize if I butchered it, but very interesting. So there's multiple names that this gentleman has gone by through the course of this investigation. And one of them is Wilk Alkos Vilkos and Mark Latunsky is another name, and this is the man who is indeed facing charges for allegedly killing and cannibalizing a 25-year-old grinder date on Christmas Eve. Latunsky, who has also gone by other names, as I just mentioned, has identified himself as several names since December 28th, 2019, and this may be part of his plan to eventually uh, plead insanity. But Kevin Bacon was the name of the man That was found dead. He was found naked and hanging by his ankles in Latunsky's basement. This case got a lot of attention because of this name. But on the felony advice rights form, he was given December 30th. Latunsky signed with the all-cost alias. That name was also associated with a Facebook page and and images connected to a gay escort profile. He also gave the name Edgar Thomas Hill... And on his arraignment and to his attorney, this man was a former chemist and was a married father of four. And he is now awaiting a competency evaluation on his insanity defense. But he is showing and has continued to show starkly different sides to both police and in court records. This may shed light as family and authorities attempt to make some sense of how this chance online meeting turned into a very dark sex tale that ended in murder and cannibalism. Before the celebrity of the same name, actor Kevin Bacon sent condolences and financial support for a funeral, family and friends of the Swartz Creek hairstylist Kevin Bacon desperately searched for their loved one. His friend Michelle Myers also rallied search party volunteers in Facebook posts. So according to friends and family, Kevin Bacon left home around 5.20 p.m. on December 24th to meet a stranger from the Grindr dating app. When he did not show up to Christmas breakfast at his parents' home the next day, his family contacted police. His car was found in a parking lot in Clayton Township. Carl Bacon, who was Kevin Bacon's father, told M Live his son's cell phone wallet and a bag with his clothes were found in his car. The cell phone that they found in the car led police to the gay, bisexual, and transgender dating app Grindr, and subsequently to Latunsky's doorstep. Police believe that Bacon went to Latunsky's house willingly. Lutunsky spent a part of Christmas with his estranged husband... Jamie Arnold and Arnold's friends acting, quote, as normal as he can be. Latunsky led police into his home December 28th to look for Bacon. In what they described as a secret room, they found the man dead. Latunsky told police he stabbed Bacon twice in the back of his neck and then strung him up and sliced his throat. He also confessed that he castrated Bacon with a knife and ate his testicles. The exact date of death is unknown, but the family told authorities it was Christmas Eve into Christmas that this supposedly happened. Now, based on information from the medical examiner, the family believes Bacon died before he was hung by his ankles using some sort of mechanical device. But there were other people that met Latunsky on Grinder, and police are now seeking to find these other men, and they want to interview them to find out what might potentially have happened and if Latunsky had done similar things to them. They already know of two men in particular, a New York man born in 1973, fled Latunsky's home, jumped Offense and called police after becoming frightened during a consensual sexual encounter. Now this happened back in October, according to authorities. A 29-year-old Lansing man wearing only a kilt got spooked during a consensual sexual encounter in which he was chained up in Latunsky's basement. Uh... Big surprise there. This happened November 25th, according to police. This man fled to a neighbor's home with Latunsky in pursuit of him and this $300 kilt that he was wearing, but neither man wanted to file a police report for obvious reasons. There's the embarrassment, the humiliation. Are they going to be taken seriously? Are they going to be labeled? Different things like that often present people from these minority groups from coming forward with evidence. But this man says he spent more days with Latunsky. Without a victim actually reporting, though, police have trouble holding people accountable. Police have also been called about a dozen times out to Latounsky's home in the past decade. There were arrests for failure to pay child support on December 10th, a call about a strange man searching a ditch on October 15th, and numerous welfare checks. But Latunsky has a history of mental illness and it is a long history, according to divorce filings by his ex-wife. Emily Latounsky. The two were married in 2001 and divorced in 2013 after having four children together. But according to reports, Latounsky was diagnosed in 2010 and 2012 with severe recurrent and chronic major depression with psychotic features, adjustment disorder with depression and anxiety with paranoid schizophrenia and borderline personality traits. Sounds like the recipe for disaster is going on right here. And there were motions that were filed in August 2019 to suspend his parenting time for those exact reasons. His condition can be treated with medication according to medical professionals, but Latunsky has a long history of not Taking his medications, according to his ex-wife's court filings. He has also been known to kidnap his own children by failing to follow custody plans and keeping her and her children from leaving the home. He also made frivolous claims to child protective services and claimed that she and her brother tried to murder him by poisoning a well. That's the ex-wife. In 2013, he introduced himself as William Gregory Dean to police and claimed that he killed Mark Latunsky with the stroke of a pen, according to police reports. He also pretended to be unconscious when police found him lying in his father's nearby home. Latunsky has been committed to hospitals no fewer than four times with mental health concerns. He attended Central Michigan University from 1987 to 1991 and interned for Dow Chemical. He also earned a master's degree in chemistry in 1995 from Iowa State University. Now, This case brings up some very, very legitimate concerns that people have with regard to dating app security. Now, in the past, we've talked about dating apps and safety tips, but police have never really seen a case like this one in the Michigan area. They suggest that people who are using dating apps meet in public places and keep their friends and family apprised of their whereabouts at all times. It does not matter if you're straight, gay, bisexual, or transgender. It's 2020, and it is okay to use these apps. But in the society we live in, in the culture that we live in now, let somebody know where you're going because anything can happen. And some of these crazy, insane monsters are hiding out in plain sight and acting like normal individuals until it is too late. Be safe, folks out there. Make sure you tell people where you're going if you're going to use dating websites or dating apps. It is just that simple. Now, the main case for today is the case of Bill Stout. Now, this case happened in Darby, Montana, in the Bitterroot Valley, and this is where it all started. This is a beautiful area, and on June 11th, Sunday, a woman, Ann Stout, called 911 saying she had just got home and did not know if there was somebody in the house So she drove to the neighbor's house to make a call, and the ambulance approached. They recognized Bill Stout's house because they remember an earlier case where they had gone there. Once the EMTs enter the house, in the bedroom at the end of the house, they uncover a man with a gunshot wound, and they consider it initially a possible suicide. Because of this fact, the EMTs back out and let police come in. The body had clearly been moved according to what they could see and had been rearranged after death. And they know this because the body was located under a comforter and there was blood dried on the skin and pillows partially covering the head. So they found all this blood and stuff beneath the pillows and the comforter, which made it obvious to them that someone had pulled that over the body after death. There was also no gun near Bill Stout. So that made a suicide unlikely. The police then started to question the family. Bill Stout grew up in California's Central Valley and met and married Anne there. He also adopted her previous small son, Ben. The two then had two sons of their own, Noah and Matt. These came later, but these two boys idolized their older brother, Ben. Bill Stout was a drywall installer who worked in construction and loved Montana, He loved being outside and Darby, Montana was the perfect place for him to settle with his family. And this is a few miles from the Idaho-Montana border. This land is gorgeous with tons of wilderness and Bill bought about 20 acres on Trapper Meadow Road and built a house with his bare hands. He said that in this new place, he felt free and happy for the first time ever Now, people who knew Bill saw that he was rugged and handsome. He was a hunter-fisherman. When the construction industry tanked a little bit, he took on positions working in a long-term care facility. Ann raised the kids, and the boys were considered to be gentlemen with exceptional grades. But when oldest son, Ben, 18 at the time, was home on a winter break, one afternoon he left a note on the counter, walked into the woods, and killed himself. Now, this was absolutely devastating for the family. Noah, who was 11 at the time, felt responsible and couldn't understand why his brother did this. And now he lost the hero that he had respected for most of his life. And nothing seemed the same after that. Neither did the marriage between Bill and Anne. Counseling was suggested, but Bill was not interested and wanted to try to tough it out. Now, seven years later, Bill was dead and everything seemed so unreal. But the sheriff immediately starts investigating in light of the way the body appeared when they came out to the house. But they can't think of anyone who would hurt Bill. He was this quiet and introverted guy who no one really wanted to harm. But then the police start looking in more detail at the body when they're trying to determine the time of death. The coroner first estimates that Bill had been dead 8 to 10 hours. That meant that he had died that morning, and he'd been home alone all day because Ann and her youngest son, Matt, had been in Missoula all day long shopping. Police and the family thought that this death must have happened that morning. Bill had been home sleeping when Ann and Matt left for their shopping trip around 8 to 8.30 a.m. Now, rural Montana, despite having a country appearance, Darby, the town of 800 on Main Street, does have surveillance cameras. And these monitor everything. And they are in flower pots, on streets, and these same cameras verified Ann and Matt passed in their car at about 8.28 a.m., the two, mother and son, had breakfast at the IHOP and Anne placed a call to Bill leaving a voicemail. She tells them they're going to Walmart and Costco and continues to call Bill throughout the day with no response from him. And then she also leaves messages. Then the two left around 3.40 p.m. and headed back through Darby. Anne and Matt arrive home shortly thereafter and start putting things away. When Anne calls out for Bill there is no answer so she thinks maybe he's gone somewhere. But then 40 minutes later Anne opens the bedroom door and sees Bill in bed. She yells and both her and Matt leave the house and call 911. Now police sit down and question Anne and Matt and ask if they either one of them had anything to do with Bill's death. Anne immediately says no, but Matt appears to look a little bit shady. He also seems really, really chill despite the fact that his father has just died and he also isn't forceful about not doing it. So they suspect that something's up with Matt, but there was something else. Anne, during the course of this investigation reveals that Bill had had an affair a few years prior. She also told investigators that Bill went to a wedding in Arkansas and spent a weekend there in a hotel, reacquainting himself with an old girlfriend. They also had many conversations over the phone. And when Anne found out and confronted him, he confessed and said that he was going to end the relationship. But, Ann claimed that Bill's girlfriend would not let the relationship end. And Noah, the other son, said that he heard his parents arguing about it on numerous occasions. He'd also said that he'd heard someone tapping on the window that their cars had been egged and poop had been thrown on them and garbage had also been thrown on the cars. Police recorded Bill calling 911 to report the latest incident and to say that his ex-girlfriend from Arkansas was harassing them. He also reported crank calls and emails from someone called Freak of Arc. So emails, meanwhile, were going out to Bill and Anne's friends, disparaging them and saying that their marriage was over. There were also letters that were arriving postmarked from Arkansas and invitations to a barbecue while welcoming and celebrating this ex-girlfriend, saying that there was an engagement that was eminent. Friends told Bill they were getting these emails and letters, but Bill denied everything and said this woman was crazy. Two weeks before Bill's death, a car followed Noah home. Then Bill's gun disappeared. This was a 9mm pistol, usually in a gun safe, and it was now gone bill reported it missing and thought maybe his stalker ex-girlfriend stole it now this ex-girlfriend was barbara miller from arkansas and she was the other woman so police immediately went to visit her and interviewed her in arkansas two days after bill's death now when they first arrived barbara has no idea why the police are there she claims she saw him one weekend And they spoke for a couple of months, and then there had been no contact between the two of them after that. But she also, at the same time, seemed very resistant to their questioning. And when they asked to see her email, she claimed she had no involvement in the case and told them that they could not see her emails. She was initially reluctant, but then eventually she opened up when she realized she was actually being considered a suspect. Now, Barb and Bill had initially started a relationship in their late teens. Bill was a friend of her brother when they were younger, and Bill told Barb he didn't want anything serious, that he'd already been married once at a very young age right out of high school, but the marriage hadn't lasted and marriage was not for him. But Barbara back then wanted more and things ended. Barbara had to move on, and she married someone else and moved with him to Arkansas, had kids, and forgot all about Bill. Then, in 2005, newly divorced Barb goes to the friend's wedding in Arkansas, and Bill had kept up a relationship with Barbara's brothers and happens to be there, too, and the two reconnect. At that time, Bill told Barb he was separated and looking for a divorce, but he was living apart from his wife. Then the two separated after the weekend was over and Bill went back to Montana and called Barb every day for weeks, sending her letters as well. The two made plans to visit and talked about the possibility of Barbara moving to Montana. But then a few months later, Bill stopped calling and sounded super distant and the two never spoke again. Now, Barb reported that she was sad and hurt, but now two years later, she hadn't heard from him. So she just assumed that he had faded into the distance and ghosted her. But despite all the stuff in Montana that she supposedly was involved in, she seems absolutely baffled and says there is no connection, and she has not done the things she's accused of. She claims she only sent one email, and that was it after the breakup. There were no letters or cards, and she has no idea who freak of Ark is, and she has nothing to do with any of the egging or anything else that happened in Montana, Barbara also claims she is scared of Bill's wife, Anne, and doesn't want to upset her or get involved because Anne is crazy. She says Anne called her and emailed her and she tried not to be angry, but it seemed like Anne wanted to be friends and she thought that was really strange. But then Barbara's boss called her into the office and said a woman had called and reported Barb was using company email for personal use and was threatening a restraining order to be served at work. But Barb has an alibi for the time of Bill's death and she sews her telephone bill. The death was on Sunday, the 10th of June, 2007. But Barb was actually in a Walmart and has the receipt to prove it during the time that Bill died. She was in the Walmart buying groceries with her husband 1,600 miles away. And that would have been a 25-hour drive if Barb was to go in and do this in Montana. Additionally, she claims she'd never even been to Montana. So her alibi is pretty much airtight. And there's no evidence whatsoever that Barb played any part in Bill's death. The police from that point on believe she is innocent, but then who had done this and who was committing all these harassing acts? A few days after Bill died, family friends have a funeral. Bill was a very loved and missed man, but they also could see that a killer was still out there on the loose. And Bill had believed that Barb had been stalking him until the day he died. Then police call Anne in again, and they recall hour by hour the last moments of Bill's life. Now, initially, the coroner believed that when they found the body, it had been dead for 8 to 10 hours, and that he had likely died around the time that Anne and Med had left the house. But this was not exactly 100% precise. So what had happened in the days and hours leading up to this? Ann reported that Saturday, June 9th, Bill went for a ride on his Harley motorcycle at around 1.58 p.m. He'd gone into Missoula, and Bill was actually seen going north at about 3.30 p.m. He's seen walking into the Harley store at about 3.40 and leaving the store about 10 minutes later. There's then, in the middle of this, a couple of hours of unknown time where no one really knows where he was. But Anne told police she thought he had stopped to have a beer, but this was unusual for him. And police go and investigate, only to find that it had confirmed that he'd had one beer at a bar in town. And then at 7.55 p.m., another camera catches him riding southbound back through Darby toward home. This means he arrived a few minutes later, a little after 8 p.m. Anne recalled very specifically grilling steak for dinner that night and she had steamed broccoli and made baked potatoes for them and that Bill and Anne stayed in for the night to have that little bit of a treat because their son Matt supposedly had other plans. He left around 9 p.m. and drove through Darby to his high school friend's bonfire and cameras verified that. But Anne claims that she and Bill watched TV, had sex, and then around 10 p.m., Bill called a friend and made plans for Sunday horseback riding on June 10th. Next, Matt is seen around 11.28 p.m. on Saturday coming home. Anne claims she waited to be sure that Matt made it home safe and then joined Bill in her bed where he was already sleeping. But... Dun dun dum. There is going to be a big surprise coming. Bill's body was given a thorough autopsy, and they confirmed that, contrary to the coroner on scene, Bill Stout did not die on Sunday morning as the coroner believed initially. He actually had broccoli his last meal on Saturday night, June 10th. Interestingly enough, the stomach stops digesting at the moment of death. So stomach contents like potato that should have been easily digested were still there, and florets of broccoli were clearly visible in Bill Stout's stomach. This meant that Bill Stout had been shot around 9 p.m. Saturday night right after his last meal and not The following morning as everyone had thought. This changed the whole investigation because Anne was alone with Bill during the time that the death was proposed. Next, the sheriff calls Anne in and they present investigation results to her and she has no idea what's going on. They also report that they smelled bleach and there had been three loads of wet laundry stuffed in various places around the house. In that laundry, they'd also found the gun holster and glove with Ann's DNA. The 9mm pistol Bill reported missing showed up too in the garage in a saddlebag on Bill's motorcycle. So this seems like insurmountable evidence and police confront Anne with this evidence and read her her rights, but they want to know what happened. And she initially plays dumb. She basically, when you look at this, she sounds like a piano teacher or somebody's mom or a librarian or something. She definitely does not sound like a killer by any stretch of the imagination, But police tell her the results of the autopsy and suggest that she killed Bill. She acts shocked and offended and tells them the gun was stolen and gives them the initial time of Bill's death, that he was killed while she left for her shopping trip and demands to know the time of death. She is super dramatic and police arrest her on the spot for the murder of Bill and she completely freaks out. Family and friends are absolutely shocked when Anne is arrested. All of them knew her as this amazing wife and mother. They said she was kind-hearted and loving, and they cannot believe she's been charged with murder. The trial begins one year later in 2008, and everything begins to unfold. There was clearly an elaborate plan to embarrass Bill and blame Barbara Miller. Also, the police can see that there is some pretty detailed planning that is revealed. Anne's office is in a long-term care facility and they look at her computer and find searches on how to poison people and how to murder someone. The hang-up calls that the family allegedly received during that time were also traced to a payphone near Anne's desk and the IP address for Freak of Arc, which was the Yahoo email address that was supposedly sending out all these threatening messages and messages to all Bill and Anne's friends and family, ends up coming back to Anne's basement and the letters and cards that they received that were postmarked in Arkansas. How'd she do that part? Detectives talked to the post office in Arkansas and the postmaster said that he got stacks of letters each month and stamped and put them into the mail with a postmark and then sent copies to Anne. Copies of these were found in her car. They also found fingerprints of Anne on the envelopes as well as Anne's DNA. So she had clearly licked those envelope flaps. This whole thing shows two years of calculated anger and planning that is just so crazy. There's evidence from everyone looking in that Bill regretted his affair, but that Anne pretended like she forgave him and created this elaborate plan to get revenge. She then stole Bill's gun and put it in a hamper where he would never look. She actually looked up instructions on how to fire a gun. Detectives, when they looked through her bedside table, found instructions on how to use a washing machine, but they looked at the directions more clearly and saw that they were actually the directions on how to fire a gun. Additionally, Anne also fired a practice round and she had opened Bill's gun box and there were bullets missing from the middle and they found these bullets in the flower box as well as the spent shell casing. They also found a tiny plant from a bush by the front door. So they believe she fired this practice round to see that she knew how to shoot a gun when no one was home. During the time that she shot the gun, she shot off a tiny little flower from a bush by the front door and that landed in the bullet box. The police had a botanist narrow the plant bloom down and found that it was the same bush from her front door. After Bill's death, Anne wrapped the gun up and put it in the saddlebag. Oh, And by the way, there was insurance as well. A $500,000 policy with Anne as beneficiary. So there is motive here. And this crazy plan, two whole years of insanity, seems like it all makes sense to police now. But Anne is not willing to give up without a fight. Her attorney claimed somebody else did it and framed her. They also said the evidence was poorly interpreted, but the prosecutors wanted the death penalty because of the premeditation and long planning involved in this case. Anne's defense attorneys claim she didn't know anything about the insurance despite her signature on it, and she didn't know anything about the welcome to Montana invitations or the DNA of hers that was on the envelopes. They also claimed the email wasn't Anne and that other people had access to her computer and could have done the computer searches that she did on murder and poisoning. Why would Anne leave the gun in the garage and not get rid of it? And that the, the towel that had been wrapped around the gun in the saddlebag was not like any of the others in the house. The defense also hired a pathologist that claims Bill committed suicide because he was underwater on his mortgage and could not pay bills. They suggest that Bill... Was facing tremendous tax liens and was dealing with a lot of stress and pressure related to finances. So, the defense also suggested some really crazy stuff. They suggested that perhaps Anne's sons were involved in this as well. That because her other son had committed suicide, that one of them had come into the house and moved the gun to shield Anne because she lost her oldest son, Ben, to suicide earlier. They wanted to spare her feelings, and that the medical examiner was wrong. They say that the medical reports found coffee in Bill's bloodstream, suggesting that he had died in the morning and not the evening. They also suggest that the steak and broccoli found in Bill's stomach was leftovers that he had eaten for breakfast, and that he was known to eat steak and broccoli in the mornings, and this explained the presence in his stomach. But September 28, 2008, the jury deliberated for six hours and delivered a verdict. Anne was guilty, and she was sentenced to life in prison. She is eligible for parole in 2038 at 73 years old. Her son, Matt, is now in the military and now visits his mom whenever he can. But her other son, Noah, went to law school And used his family story as a case study. He is now his mother's attorney on record and says that he has forgiven his mom despite her crimes. This case is also an example of what the autopsy can do in the ultimate outcome of a case. Because they found the undigested food in the stomach. And had never anticipated the digestive actions of her husband when she killed him. And that ultimately came back and bit her in the butt. This case to me is just so insane, too, for the sheer volume of planning that this woman did, the emails, the letters, the trying to frame his ex-girlfriend for this death. Clearly, she was not mentally stable after this affair that her husband had, and it is a very, very, very sad case. I can only hope that she's getting some mental help while she's in prison and that Bill Stout rests in peace. This is the point in the podcast, though, where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We're at the BFDPodcast at gmail.com. You can also check us out on social media at the Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!